0: Psalm 103, page 65. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious blood poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life for evermore. Good morning, everybody. Nice to see you. My name's Ali Gordon. I'm on the leadership team here at Christchurch Hillsfield. Andy was away on holiday at the moment with Sarah and the lads. And Ash has been away for a couple of weeks as well on holiday. So I've been asked to step up and step in and to speak on this psalm this morning. And I can honestly tell you, it has been an absolute joy to read this psalm over the last couple of weeks. It's a very short psalm. And as it was read to us, you might have been thinking, crikey, how do we get a whole sermon um, <laughs> three verses? So I prepared a brief hour or so on this uh, particular text. That was a joke, uh, by the way. It, it's a very simple psalm. And actually, the message that I'll bring is really the message of the psalm, as it should be. And that is how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. That's it. If you remember one thing, just remember that. There are actually, having said that, two points. And if you're taking notes, and uh, I hope that you can, um, two points. The first point is how good and pleasant it is when God's people are united. And the second point is how can we express unity in Christ today? How do we express unity in Christ today? So that's an idea of where we're going to. Um, but let's begin by praying, shall we? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God who speaks and you spoke all those years ago when you inspired the psalmist to write these words. You speak just as audibly today through these same words. Help us now to hear your voice as we look at this psalm together and help me to reflect faithfully what you'd have us here today to strengthen your church and to unite your people in Jesus name. Amen. This has been a season of weddings, has it not? And over the last couple of months, we've celebrated with Aidan and Dimity, with Joy and with Garrett, with Charlotte and Ed, and then yesterday with Jess and James up at St. Helens Church. We've had a lot of weddings in the church, and it's been like the summer of love in a way. And I wonder quite what's in the water at the moment. Be careful as you drink it. And they're such great occasions, weddings, aren't they? I really love uh, a wedding. We all get dressed up in our finery, and in the Gordon household it's a rare occasion when we get to get dressed up like that. Anna gets to wear a nice dress and spanky shoes, and I get to wear something that's actually been ironed for an occasion. Uh, And Lily loves it, Lily loves the weddings as well. And weddings are great, you get all the good food, you get all the good wine, you get to dance... And I have to say, last night, DJ Tom Duckering, he brought the music. <laughs> and uh, Well, James and Susie, you guys brought the dancing. It has to be uh, said. But you get the dancing, and that can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on your point of view. Um, my favourite part of yesterday, actually, was looking out. I was leading the music and looking out and seeing people sing and watching Christians sing together praises about Jesus. United singing as they praise. And yesterday was a Christian wedding. And apologies to those who weren't there, but yesterday was a Christian wedding. And one of the wonderful things about a Christian wedding is you get to catch up with all Christian mates, folks you haven't seen for many, many years. And how good it is to see your Christian mates, and they're still Christian, and they're still going for it in their faith. It's such an encouraging thing to happen. So I start by talking about a wedding. Well, I think Having the picture of weddings in your mind helps us understand something of the context of this psalm. Now, it's not a psalm about a wedding. Neither was it written to be sung at a wedding. But the idea of celebration, God's people together, dancing, music, all helps us understand the context of this psalm. In fact, it's worth just thinking about the context for a moment. This is a song of ascent. Now, there were 15 songs of ascent written all together. It seems likely that there were songs that were sung as pilgrims went up to Jerusalem for one of the three major festivals of the Jewish calendar. And we're about 800 years before Jesus was born here, for the time frame. Pilgrims would have come from all across the country, and they travel up to Jerusalem, both physically going up, because Jerusalem was on a hill, but also metaphorically it's like when we say you're going up to london you know it's the capital city it's the epicenter of our country so we kind of we go up it's like that going up to jerusalem and they would have gone to celebrate they would have gone to celebrate god's goodness and his provision his bringing them out of slavery and into a new land likely representing tribes from right across israel and possibly even the northern and southern kingdoms represented together. So friends would have been reunited, old family bonds would have been strengthened. In many ways, it really would have been like a Christian wedding today. And there'd be food, lots of wine, lots of meat. So all your South Africans would have loved it. And if you read back to Leviticus, look at all the meat that had to be sacrificed and eaten. And the thing is, it was a religious requirement to eat all the meat. How good that? And how many religions do you know that that instruct you to finish all the meat? Can't, Can't put it in the freezer for later on. You know, this would have been a really great celebration. And imagine then how towards the end of the celebrations, perhaps those pilgrims would have sung this song. As they'd met with family, as they'd eaten together, and they'd sing, how good, how pleasant it is, When God's people live together in unity. Or maybe in another sense, it might have been a little bit like when, as a church, we go to Revive. Now, if you're new to church, Revive is kind of like a a sort of jolly that we go on, where all the churches who are part of our church network meet together once a year. And it's a celebration, so we sing, we eat, we eat lots of meat. uh, We catch up with old mates. And more than that, it's a time when we celebrate what God has done for us, isn't it? It's a time when we celebrate what he's done for us as churches, but more so what he's done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We read his word, we pray, we sing about how good he is, we celebrate and it's good and it's pleasant. This year in our home groups, we've been doing something of a Bible overview and we've looked at how God's people through generations in the Old Testament, were split and scattered into foreign countries as generation after generation were torn apart, enslaved, through years of raiding parties, through terrible leadership, through warring factions. Can you imagine then what it would have been like for these pilgrims as they came back to Jerusalem on that dusty road up to Jerusalem in the heat of the day, thinking, we're coming home. We're returning again to our spiritual home. And we're going to worship God with our old mates and with our kin. This idea of coming together. Of celebrating unity. It would have been very much in their minds. So let's dig into the text, shall we? And this is our first main point then. How good and pleasant it is when God's people are united. So the psalmist begins with this bold statement. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. The psalmist gives us two pictures to illustrate just how good and pleasant it is for God's people to be united. The first is a picture of precious oil. And the second one is a picture of dew on Hermon. So these are kind of two sub-points. Right? Precious oil is one. Refreshing dew is the second. Let's start with precious oil. Verse 2 reads, It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. Now, I did think it would be good to have some kind of visual aid here, and as I prepared, I thought, who in church has a really good beard? And uh, maybe we could pour some vegetable oil down that beard and uh, down that shirt. But honestly, I, um, I couldn't really think of anyone, so... You're, you'll, you'll be glad not to be embarrassed. Although Andy came to mind. Andy Fenton, our vicar, has been growing a beard. And may be lucky for him, he's on holiday. Andy shaved it last week as well, didn't he? But you really need to imagine a really big bushy beard for this one, not just a cool kind of hoxton beard, something really big and, uh, and bushy. And think about the oil pouring down. Now, in this Jewish society, oil would have been regarded as a luxury item. Very expensive item, a little bit like perfume or expensive aftershave today. So for the Jews to pour the, the oil over the beard so it runs down onto the collar, well really it's, it's an overly exuberant image of great abundance And that oil would have been scented. It would have smelled quite nice, actually. This particular type of oil was used for anointing Aaron's beard. And it was used for the ceremonies at the temple. It would have had a beautiful aroma to it. Later on, if you want to check out the ingredients in Exodus 23, you'll come across cinnamon, cassia, myrrh, spices that were used for very special occasions that were very expensive and would have smelled lovely. This week I put those ingredients into the great oracle of Google and the word fragrance, just to see what would come up. And you know what came up? Number one to eight came up, if you put in case, cinnamon, myrrh fragrance, you get Christmas fragrance or Christmas spray. And I did actually order some. Um, but, Amazon didn't get it here in time. So, so, there we, so you just have to imagine that. But it's that wonderful smell, that kind of Christmassy, cinnamony, spicy sort of smell. And this is what Aaron's beard would have smelt like, flowing down off his beard. So I suppose you could say that the psalmist puts it that when God's people are united, it kind of smells like Christmas. Yeah? It smells really good. It smells really pleasant when God's people are united. So it's a fragrant oil, but it's also an anointing oil. An anointing oil. That meaning it was used for ceremonies of atonement. Aaron would have been anointed with the oil before going into the temple to make sacrifices that would restore God's people back to him. This oil then is associated with God being united again to his people. It's an image of reconciliation. It's a picture of God uniting his people back to him. So when God's people live together in unity, it's good because it reminds us of God reconciling his people back to him. It's that good. What else can we say about the oil very briefly? So it smells nice, it's an anointing oil, And it's also a consecrating oil. It's a holy oil. Back in Exodus 29, we read about this oil being sprinkled over Aaron's beard before he went into the most holy part of the temple. So it made him holy so that he could carry out the temple rituals. Now, of course, there's nothing magical about the oil. It's just oil. But it was something symbolic, maybe even more than symbolic, of preparing Aaron to be holy so that God's people could be holy again and set apart. So it's, it's a holy oil. So do you get the symbolism here? This is a picture that's all about God bringing his people back to him. A picture of God making his people holy and pure and sweet smelling. Smelling like Christmas and set apart. And it's all in this abundance That's poured out over Aaron's beard and drips down onto the collar. This is how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's that good. The second picture that the psalmist gives us is that of dew on Hermon. Verse 3 reads It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Well, a couple of weeks ago, a few of us were uh, pretty glued to the TV and to Wimbledon. And I know some of you actually got up to Wimbledon just a few miles from where we're sitting here. And this year, apparently, it was one of the hottest Wimbledons on record. And if you were sitting there in centre court during one of those games, one of Andy Murray's games in particular, it would have been absolutely baking hot. And can you imagine what that would have been like for those players when after that hot game... Finally, they could get back to the changing rooms, get a cold shower, pick up a, a pint of some cold, fizzy drink, and refresh themselves with cold water and cold drink. That would have been a really lovely thing. It would have been great even if you were just watching the tennis to have a cold shower halfway through, particularly the final, actually. So can you imagine then this situation for these Jewish pilgrims as they go up to Jerusalem many of them travelling for many days. If they were travelling for the Feast of the First Fruits or the Feast of Booths, which happened in the hot and dry season, well, it would have been really hot indeed. Apparently, between May and October, no rain falls in Jerusalem, or at least very little rain falls in Jerusalem. And if they were travelling at that time, going up the hill towards Jerusalem, Can you imagine how pleasant that picture would have been of Jew falling down Mount Hermon onto Mount Zion? And Mount Zion, of course, is in Jerusalem where they were headed towards. Hermon is a mountain, not just a fellow's name. Mount Hermon is the highest peak in the kingdom and it was covered in snow. It's a snow-capped mountain. So there would have been water running down Hermon more or less all the way through the year. And for an agricultural community like the Jewish community at that time, that picture of water and Jew would have been absolutely vital. The Jew brings growth, uh, not just refreshment, but agriculture, uh, flourishing of their crops. So what's it like when God's people live together in unity? Well, it's as good as precious oil And and it's as pleasant as refreshing dew that brings growth, that brings a flourishing of life. Wouldn't it be really great to be part of a church like that? Wouldn't that be amazing to be part of God's people united in that way? Where there's unity, growth, flourishing, refreshment, where the gospel's going out, where people are getting taught well about Christ, people's lives are changed, where people are coming to know Jesus, where we're growing together, not just in numbers, but in faith, in our understanding, in our enjoyment of God, where we encourage one another, where we support one another. Wouldn't that be great? I have to say, I don't think we're doing too badly at Unity in the church, okay? I'm not too worried. As far as I'm aware... I don't think there are major fallouts in the church. And we should be thankful to the Lord for that. But it's something that we need to work on, don't we? And pray for. Verse 3 concludes, For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life evermore. There, the Lord bestows his blessing. Geographically, at that time, God's people would have met around Jerusalem. There would have been a physical geography to their unification. That was their spiritual home. That's where they belonged. For us now, it's kind of different. We we have a different geography. We unite around something very different. We unite around Jesus Christ. He's our geography, if you will. He's who binds us together. Now, today I think we could say we're kind of a fairly individualistic society. Um, You kind of think mostly for ourselves. And that individualism sometimes maybe even creeps into the way we think about church, or even the way we think about our own faith. So if I was to ask you why did Christ die on the cross, I don't know, you might say something like, He died to save my sins. Or he died that I might return to God. Or he died that I might be able to go to heaven. And of course all those things are totally true and totally right. But they're very individualistic. They're very about me and about the I. Jesus also died to purify his people. To unite all of his people back to him according to Ephesians you see, Jesus died to save his entire church and individuals who are a part of it. And for God's people back then, well, they lived in a very different kind of cultural environment, a very different worldview, if you will. Their focus likely was actually much more on community than our focus would be today. When they sang this song, they'd be thinking about God's uniting us that we are united to him and in being united to God we are united to one another now it may be helpful here to think about unity collectively in terms of bible overview now we've been doing a bible overview this year and it's helpful just to think through back through that uh, bible overview when we think about particularly unity and disunity So very briefly then, at creation story, God creates the world. He created man. It's good for man. It's not good for man to be alone. So he creates woman. Man and woman, they are united together. Always good. But then we see disunity. There's a breaking down of those relationships. As unity goes wrong, Adam and Eve are blaming each other for the apple. They're disunited. They're cast out of God's presence. They're disunited. Then we read about Cain and Abel, murder. Immediately we see strife, we see disunity, we see people who don't want to live together. Sin brings disunity. Mankind tries to create unity through building a tower, the Tower of Babel, as if they say we can be united through building a tower and we don't need God to build that tower. And that doesn't work out particularly well for them, does it? They end up scattered, and God Himself scatters them, and there's disunity. Immediately, the next chapter God's promise to Abraham I'll make a great nation through you. One nation will come from one man, one united nation from Abraham. The people were called out to Egypt, called out of slavery, and for a moment they were united in the land, but then they continued to sin. And their stubbornness and their sin leads to civil war. North again, south divided, disunited again. And then exile. The people are scattered, disunity. And the prophets begin to speak of one. One man who would come to unite the people once again. And of course we know that person to be Jesus Christ So if you will, keep your finger in Psalm 133 and join me in Ephesians chapter 1, that's page 1173, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 9, page 1173. There are many high notes in the New Testament and uh, I think this is one of them. Here we see God's plan for his entire universe. Hold on to your hats. So Ephesians 1 verse 9. God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Okay, this is where history is going. This is what the future holds. God is bringing all things together together All things in heaven and on earth united under the one head of Jesus Christ. So it's interesting then that as a book, Ephesians talks an awful lot about how now Christians should live together, how we should treat one another. It's as if to say, if this is where history is going in the future, let's think about living now in the light of that great future, And then, at the end, to Revelation, we read about Jesus returning to his people. Heaven coming down to earth. And God and his people living together in perfect unity. Sin can't ruin it anymore. Not even death can separate us from the love of God. And being with him in his new creation forever. This brings us back again to the wedding because it's a wedding feast that we read about in Revelation, a brilliant wedding feast where the church is the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom and there's lots of food and there's wine and there's singing and there's dancing and we'll be dancing much better than I danced last night, that's for sure. And all other weddings are really a kind of foretaste of this great, brilliant wedding to come when God and his people are united once and for all. Do you you get that sort of smell of Psalm 133 in all of this? The smell of precious oil, the feel of dew from Hermon. How good, how pleasant it is when God's people are united. It's a beautiful picture. And there at the centre of New Jerusalem is Jesus. Sitting on his throne, surrounded by all his people from every nation, from all across time, united in songs of praise, worshiping different languages around Jesus. And you see in one sense, unity in one sense, unity is the whole goal of the universe. It's all heading towards unity around Jesus. So this psalm is all about how good it is when God's people are united. And we read it in the context of God's ultimate plan, that all things unite around Christ and it smells good and the experience of it is pleasant. So we come to our second point, second and shorter point. How can we express that unity as Christians today? How do we express unity in Christ? How then do we work towards that as a church? What does unity look like with other Christians who might think differently? from us what about showing unity with christians from all around the world who we've never met christians who may be suffering under the most difficult of circumstances how do we unite with them three very small subpoints here the first one unity in the global church the second one uh, unity with christians who are different from us and then the third one unity in our own church here so to begin with unity in the global church a couple of years ago, I used to work with university students and my boss there told this great story about going on a mission trip to, uh, to Belgium and he was at the airport with his wife and he saw this bunch of people kind of round about um, the gates from all different walks of life, young people, old people and all really different looking people and all really getting on and he said they were singing together and it's an unusual thing to see at the airport for sure. And he turns to his wife and he says, I bet they're Christians. I bet, from the way they're acting, they're, they're Christians. And she says, Oh God, what, what are you going to ask? What are you going to ask? So off he goes to ask these people in Belgium. And he identifies who he thinks might be the leader. And he says, I'm sorry, I couldn't help but notice that um, you, you all seem to get on really well with each other. You don't look like you're a family. And I just wonder, could I ask, are, are you Christians? And the guy says, apparently he says, uh, no, no, we're not Christians. Uh, We're Morris dancers. (laughs) And apparently they happen to be the national Morris dancing team of Belgium. (laughs) Slightly awkward for my boss then, uh, pulling away from that that conversation. So I guess, (laughs) I guess Christians aren't the only ones. We don't have the monopoly on the way that we act together in kind, nice, Sort of ways, but it does make me wonder is, is there something that identifies us as believers? You know, can you tell a group of Christians at the airport from a group of Morris dancers, <laughs> maybe less facial hair, perhaps and less bells and things like that. yeah, can you tell? can you see how that looks well it 's not just Christians who act differently, but we should be able to tell we should be able to tell. One way we might express our unity with Christians across countries is through prayer. So to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. Now that means being aware of what other Christians are up to and suffering around the world. In the past for me this book Operation World has been quite a helpful tool to pray through. It's an old version now, but Operation World has a chapter around every country and explains what Christians are doing and suffer in each country. And it's quite a wonderful thing to read a page a week and pray for Christians in that country. Of course, there are other missionary organisations who we can pray for, like Overseas Mission Fellowship, OMF, Crosslinks, IFES, which is the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students, Tear Fund. All these groups have websites that we can get information from. You might want to send finances to support those efforts. You might even want to go yourself. Within our church fellowship, we support various international missionaries. And we've prayed for Donald and Becky today, who are in Mexico. So let's pray for these partners. We express unity in Christ through uniting with Christians around the world. And it's good. It's like oil running down Aaron's beard. We express unity through fellowship with Christians in other churches. And it's pleasant. It's like the dew of Hermon falling on Mount Zion. So our second sub-point then is unity with other churches. Well, as you'll know, Christ Church Oldsfield is part of a network of churches, part of Evangelical Anglican churches in London called Co-Mission. But we also share a really good friendship with other Evangelical churches around the country. And from time to time we put on events like Word Alive or... The London's men's or women's uh, convention. And we show unity in these ways. But what of showing unity with churches or denominations who we might not see eye to eye with on stuff, okay, who are different from us? How do we know who to unite with and who not to unite with? The Bible is crystal clear on what it means to be a Christian. And who exactly are our true brothers and sisters and who are not? Here's how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Paul writes, For what we received, what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. These are the things Paul states here as the things of first importance. So for those who believe from the scriptures that Christ died for our sins, that he rose again, for those who trust in Jesus for their salvation, well, these are the people we're united with. Put simply, to share with other Christians who are different from us is such a wonderful thing. It's good and it's pleasant, it's like precious oil. You see, it doesn't matter what kind of music you play, what you wear when you go to church, what colour your skin is, how much you get paid for your job, that doesn't matter. Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, we are all one in Christ Jesus. The gospel unites people from all across the globe, from every global situation, from every social group, every demographic, It's such a good and pleasant thing, like Jew on Mount Hermon. But of course, not all Christians, not all people who say that they are Christian, are indeed Christian. And here Paul is clear. These are the things of first importance, he says. Those who don't put their trust in Christ, or who don't believe he rose again in accordance to the scriptures, well, they are not Christian, and we're not united to them. To those who believe they are saved through acting in a certain way, through being good, through trusting in themselves, through trusting in other gods, in money, in status, in anything other than Jesus Christ, we're not united to them and we mustn't be naive. But actually, there, there are lots of people who disagree with some of the things that we think about in smaller ways, but we're still united to them. So perhaps whether you disagree about you should baptise children or adults or different methods of evangelism. If these people still believe the same gospel as we do, well then we're united. We're brothers and sisters together in Christ. If they've put their trust in Jesus as Lord, if they've repented of their sins, if they want to live in a way that honours God, they're Christians. We're united and it's good and it's pleasant. Thirdly then, what of unity within our church? And this is our third little sub-point and the last thing before we draw some conclusions. What is it that stops us from uniting as a church in Christchurch Hillsfield? Well, I suppose potentially there could be a few things. There could be some great sin in the church. There could be some power struggle within the leadership of the church. And again, I don't really see that happening, but it's something we need to work at there's lots of issues that we could talk about, but I'd like to focus just on one issue, if I can. I'm really going to talk about when we harbour resentment towards one another. When we find it hard to forgive, and when we find it hard to say sorry. We forgive because God first forgave us. That's why we forgive. Jesus even said in his ignorance... He even forgave us, sorry, in our ignorance. He even forgave us. As Christ died, he asked to his Father, he said, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. Even in our ignorance, God forgives us. And it strikes me how often, when we fall out with one another, how often Is it because the offending party actually just doesn't realise what they've done? You know, they might have said something that hurts you or done something that hurts you and not realised. And were you to go and say, hey, that hurt me, they might actually say, you know, I have no idea and I'm really sorry. Sometimes we actually just need to go and ask, are you aware that you did that? We need to hold short accounts with one another. Not to let things fester. We need to forgive one another. Even when we might not even realise we've done it, we need to forgive. We need to say sorry and be quick to say sorry. So how then do you know when you've forgiven someone? How do you know that? A few months ago, Anna and I listened to a really great sermon by R.T. Kendall on this Issue is very helpful for us at that time. He suggested a couple of tests, if you will, to apply. If you're wondering if I know, have I really forgiven someone? And I offer them to you very briefly here. How do I know when I've forgiven someone? First, I know I've forgiven someone because I don't need to talk about it anymore. It's interesting, isn't it? You don't have to talk about the issue. It doesn't kind of slip out into conversation. Here and there. You don't need to talk about it. It's done. It's over. I know that I've forgiven that person. Second, how do I know when I've really forgiven someone? Well, I can pray for them. I can pray for them. Prayer is such a test, isn't it? It exposes the motivation of our hearts. And when you can start praying for someone, well, it's a good indication that you're you're able to forgive them. His third point is not just to pray for them, but to ask God to bless them. Say, God, would you do good things in their lives? Would they prosper in their lives? If you can do that, you're probably getting towards being able to forgive them. And his fourth point is kind of connected to that. What if God answers that prayer and they end up being really blessed and brilliant things start happening in their lives? Can you be happy about that? That's a tough one, isn't it? And if you can be happy about that, then the chances are you're well on your way to be able to forgive them. So it's tough, but we have to forgive one another because God forgave us. And we have to say sorry to one another. And I'd gladly talk more about that to anyone who'd like to after the service. But let's get back to the sun and let's draw a couple of conclusions then as we close. So three, three little conclusions as we finish. Firstly... Let's hold firm to the gospel. Let's hold firm to the gospel. It's as simple as that. You see, this picture of oil on Aaron's beard, it's all about the overflowing abundance of grace, reconciliation that came through that sacrificial system at the temple. Aaron would make peace with God on behalf of the people and they'd be restored back to him. And it would smell... Beautifully. But now it's Jesus who's our ultimate sacrifice. He died once for all. We don't have to go through that sacrificial system anymore. We don't have Aaron the priest because Christ has achieved unity for us back with God. Christ is now Lord and Saviour of all things. So believe in that gospel. The psalm is telling us that when we hold on to that gospel, the good news of Jesus, that it unites us back to God and as such we're united together. So how do we remain united? How can I encourage you and you encourage me to be united? You can encourage me in unity by believing in the gospel and holding firmly to The gospel, it's like precious oil poured on the head, running down the beard, running down Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. So hold firm to the gospel. Second, well, let's strive for unity. Let's strive for unity. Perhaps it's just in the little things. Perhaps it's in who we chat to at the end of the service, who we sit next to in church, um, who we invite around for lunch on a Sunday. It's good to break out of those little social cliques that we so easily find ourselves getting into, often we do it subconsciously. Perhaps there's just one relationship that you need to work on in church, maybe just one, someone you need to say sorry to, or perhaps somebody you need to be able to forgive. Perhaps there's someone you need to say to, even today, I'd really like to talk to you about this thing, but I think it's kind of come between us. Can we talk about it? Do that. Do that. It's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. It's refreshing, it brings growth, it brings a flourishing. And thirdly then and finally, let's keep coming to church. Keep coming. God's people sang this song and it reminded them of how good and how pleasant it was when they met together. We can imagine them singing it kind of on the way back home again from the festival as they went down the hill and back home after the food and after the wine, after all the meat, after singing praises, after the sacrifices, after all of these wonderful things, good times with their mates, with family, worshipping God together, like coming back from a Christian wedding, like coming back from Revive. You see, we don't just have a relationship with God. We have a relationship with his people. And this psalm says how good and pleasant it is to have that relationship with one another. So that means keep coming to church. As we gather, we're reminded of the goodness of unity. We're reminded about what where the universe is going, all things united around Christ. We're not just Christians on our own. We're part of his people. And remember then how good and pleasant it is when we do that, when God's people live In unity, it's like precious oil, it's an abundant, life-giving thing. It's like dew, it's refreshing and flourishing, and it brings growth, and it's something we can enjoy and work on, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life evermore. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you delight to be united to yourself and you delight to be united to your people. Thank you for this picture of great unity amongst your people, as fragrant as the reconciliation that came alongside that precious oil, as refreshing as life-giving dew flowing from Mount Hermon. Father, would you then help us to cling tight to the gospel as we unite as your people around it. We pray it in the name of he who unites us, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.